We're continuing our Good, Bad, and the Ugly series, and we'll be in Esther chapter 4. We've been hitting uh, different people in the Old Testament and seeing how they point us forward to our great Savior. Uh, if you don't know where to find Esther, you can find uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Then you go past Nehemiah right in there, and you'll find Esther. So uh, Esther chapter 4, uh, let me read this passage for us, and then Brandon will preach from the Word of God. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whether the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was very deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak and one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai that Esther had said, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. It's the word of God. Good morning, everyone. I want to make a quick announcement. On August 26th, you may have seen a flyer outside at the Welcome Table. There's a Faith, Sex, and Identity seminar for students, uh, preteen and teenagers, middle school and high school is the range, uh, happening August 26th at 10:30. So, if you have a child, your child has a friend, if you just have a friend, uh, come join us. It is 10:30 at 4C. We're teaming up with 4C. 
Bible Church and uh, hopefully delivering some good news to some students who have a lot of confusing stuff to work through uh, in today's age. So, um, I remember probably <clears throat> 10 years ago, almost, almost 10 years ago, I was in my 3D. If you're visiting here today, our 3Ds are small communities. I'm getting a little bit of feedback, just FYI. Um, so our uh, small Bible studies, same-sex Bible studies in our community groups, uh, see Chad at a welcome table to ask about how to be a part of one of those. But uh, I was in my small 3D group, and we were just talking about life. And a lot of different guys at that time, fresh out of college and uh, with ex- ex- expectations on their trajectory of life, and uh, everybody had in common this expectation for a defining moment in their lives. And whatever that was, it was different. And I think it's something that we all have in common, uh, maybe explicitly or implicitly, that we expect that there's this defining moment in our lives, uh, whatever that may be. Maybe it's this promotion you've been looking for, working. You expect to work very hard in a specific field, and you're looking to get that promotion. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's parenting. Uh, Whatever it is, this thing that happens in your life that defines you and that gives you an ultimate sense of purpose And many people find themselves not having that moment and are found in despair and things like that. Or maybe many stars who (laughs) have actually found their defining moment and still have this desire for want in their hearts and they're left with despair because it's like they had the defining moment and yet here I am still looking for a defining moment. But we talked about these things and our 3D leader, Gio, my good friend, He posed this fun question. I posed it to the students this past Wednesday. And it's just a very silly, defining moment question, but it was interactive. He said, if you had to choose one, what would you choose? You have to catch the winning touchdown of the Super Bowl. It's a 50-yard pass, and you're wide open. Uh, You have to shoot the winning shot of an NBA Finals game. You're wide open. It's a three-pointer. Or you have to sing the national anthem for both of those. Uh, What do you choose in those things? And people... We're thinking very hard, and something that came up in a lot of our answers was the fear of what would happen if we fail. And, and, and it's not like the ball would do something to you or the microphone. We were all concerned with what people would think of us when we fail, which a lot of us were familiar with catching a football and shooting a basketball, um, not singing a national anthem, um, probably more concerned with uh, disgracing a song written in the greatest city in the world. But it, it's the, what we were all concerned with was what will people think of us if we fail? If we fail. And I was thinking about that as I was reading through this passage, and I want to go a little bit further. No matter the anxiety that comes in thinking about having to catch the winning touchdown or shoot the winning jump shot or sing the national anthem in front of millions of people, Imagine catch or drop, make or missed shot, butchered or uh, beautified singing of the national anthem. I'm sure you're going to have some microphones in your face afterwards. And imagine in in the interview, when you're being interviewed, after your success or failure, I'm sure all of us would have succeeded. They ask you, hey, now, what is it about this whole Christian thing? Why do you subscribe to such a bigoted ideology? Or is it inclusive? I mean, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, right? 
I mean, there are so many other people who have different paths to heaven. I mean, could you, could you just go ahead and give clarity to that and let people know that he's not the only way? Why are Christians so narrow-minded? And I think on a good day, we'd probably look like this gentleman right here. I want to submit to you that when it comes to the Christian, there isn't a defining moment we ought to be looking for. It's actually a little bit more beautiful than that. The Christian doesn't have moment, but moments. It's not a defining moment, but it's a defining call made on our lives for those of us in Christ, that we'd be faithful in every single moment, no matter the consequence. Because I'm sure in those questions, even hypothetically, we're thinking, what will people think based on what I say? Or what will happen to me based on what I say? Will I be invited back to this hypothetical moment of catching the winning touchdown and shooting the jump shot or singing the national anthem? Will I be ostracized? The story of Esther, and specifically this passage, highlights the loyalty that we see. And it's a beautiful thing. First, I want to give some context. One, this is 100 years after Babylonian captivity. Babylon uh, took uh, Israel captive, uh, and then the king of Persia, Darius, set them free, allowed them to go back home, but some stayed. A remnant stayed, and the capital city of Susa is where this takes place. That's the capital of Persia, and now it's not King Darius who's king, it's his son, uh, Ahasuero, I believe is the way you pronounce it. But a better way of saying it is Xerxes. If you've ever seen the movie 300, that's who's portrayed in the movie 300. Um, It's King Xerxes. Uh, And Esther is made queen uh, after King Xerxes dismisses his former queen. Uh, And I don't know if she's one of many, but we do know that she's one, and she's young. She's young. And another thing to highlight about this is that there is no mention of God explicitly. Not one. It's a very odd thing for a book of the Bible. There's no mention of God. And though there's no explicit mention of God, you can definitely see his working in the deliverance of his people. And so this is a story of loyalty. Another way that we can understand loyalty that I'm about to dive into is faith, and I want to show you how that connects. Oftentimes when we think about faith, we as a culture, I want to say, the Christian faith is seen as one that's blind, that it's something you do because someone told you to do it, something you believe because someone told you to believe it. Meanwhile, our faith is is not blind. It's actually evidence built on it. Paul says in Romans 1, That God's eternal power and divine nature is clearly perceived. That we know that there's a God. But then also for the Christian, we know the actual workings of God in our own heart first and in our lives after. Our faith is not blind and it ought not be blind. As a matter of fact, When you do call yourself a Christian because someone told you to call yourself a Christian, that's what leads to trial, suffering, or any challenge making you walk away. There's no anchor. 
It's just this thing somebody told you to do this one time. What is known about God is plain. Our faith is informed. And so faith can come from evidence, but not all of our faith is rooted in evidence. And that's where the loyalty comes in. My favorite definition of faith comes from Michael Heiser, who's a, who was, he recently passed. He's a Hebrew and Semitic languages scholar. And he calls faith believing loyalty. And that there are things about God that we have seen and we have witnessed and we believe him. And then there are things you're going to go through in your life that dwell in the unknown, that dwell in the mystery, but you know God to be good and you remain loyal to him because he's good. And the beauty of this is this is the faith that connects the left side of the Bible to the right side of the Bible. Ancient Israel has seen the good works of God, his deliverance, his grace, his mercy, and they trust in the fact that his goodness is the thing that is ultimately going to redeem them and deliver them. They're looking forward to that. We know that explicit goodness to be manifested in the person, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we look back on the cross knowing that God's goodness was made manifest in Jesus' death on the cross. How do we know that he's good? Because he sent Jesus to die while we were enemies of his. That's good news. This good news is a reminder for the Christian. Because you live a life as a Christian and you keep failing and you might have the temptation to ask, man, does God even love me? It's like, oh, we know he loves you. Well, how? Because he sent his son to die for you while you were an enemy. How much more grace and love does he have for a child of his? It's good news to know that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And because we know his goodness as seen in Jesus' life, we remain loyal to him in every circumstance. And this is the loyalty that you see in this passage. A loyalty that says, I know the Lord to be good even amid a turbulent and fallen world even when everything around me neglects him, even when my very life could be taken, I know him to be good. And there are three ways I want you to see that this believing loyalty exists in this passage. Three things that's popped out to me specifically. It's the need to have loyal companionship, loyal witness, and having a loyal father. This is what bolsters our believing loyalty in our walk, and it's illustrated in this passage here. Having loyal companionship, having a loyal witness, and having a loyal father. Let's start with loyal companionship. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Some context. There is a perpetual enemy of Israel, a descendant of the Canaanites named Haman, who gets into the king's ear and he kind of persuades the king to usher a decree 
where the Jews will be exterminated. And now that information has gotten out and Mordecai, who was Esther's cousin, who raised her, you see his reaction and you see all the Jews' reaction. And obviously, ancient Eastern grief is a bit different than our grief today. Unless some of you are still wearing sackcloth and putting ash on your face. Now, some of us who didn't grow up in a Western context who are here today can probably still relate closely to what you see right here in ancient Israel. And that the grief is very out loud. It's very transparent, very vulnerable. It's not reserved and inward. As a matter of fact, the grief is expected to be met with some companionship where others who are with you, who are united to you, grieve with you. And you do it together. Hello? And that's something that we try to facilitate here, but there are some walls we have to tear down in our own hearts. We try to facilitate that in our communities, in our 3Ds, where you have a space where you can be transparent and vulnerable and then enter into this companionship with loyalty, saying that, hey, I'm going to loyally hurt in front of you, trusting that you'll hurt with me, that you'll grieve with me. And I think on a larger spectrum, this is something falling away for us as Christians and what it means to be a Christian. First of all, you, you take the word Christian and you'll find two million different definitions. And so it's hard to even know what unites us in order for us to grieve together. Some of the things we think unites us is our ballot, our skin color, our sexual preferences, and Christ is nowhere near the one who has united us through his broken flesh. And so we don't even know when something is happening to the church. Because you don't know who the church is. And suffering is something that unites us because suffering is what made us. Christ suffered once and for all that we would be united as brother and sister under God's name. The Jews are united in a reality of their suffering, and it would do well for us to recognize it. Conversations of persecution comes up, and uh, maybe the thoughts are that, hey, look, persecution only happens in this part of the world, or uh, it, even if it does happen here, it's not like this or that part of the world. Um, the way it happens in this part of the world will never happen to us, and it's only happening to them and not us here. And where's the united front and loyal companionship and our mourning and grief for even what is happening around the world? Or do you not know what's happening around the world in places like China and Africa to brothers and sisters of ours? All of it is not our fault. We can't keep up with everything that's going on, but we most certainly know more about what's happening around the world in this generation than any other previous generation. It's right in our pocket. And I just want to know, what's your reaction when we see news like this? Is there a heart of mourning and grief? And I'm not saying to manufacture that, but I'm saying that, that heart of mourning and grief is indicative of believing loyalty you may have to their father that unites you as a sibling. It's something we go to the Father and, Lord, give me a heart that breaks for my siblings around the world. 
who are being loyal in their belief and suffering for it. I remember hearing a story um, some year, a couple years ago maybe of Deborah, Samuel, a Nigerian who lived in Sokoto. And she had just passed a test and on her WhatsApp group she praised Jesus for it. And a gang of her radical Muslim classmates saw that post, got enraged, murdered her. They beat her, and doused her with gas, and lit her on fire. And she had been doing this previously, and people warned her that you better not be doing this. You know what can happen to you. And the fact that she continued to do it meant that she wasn't concerned with what might happen but it was her loyalty to who helps her in life, who helps her succeed, who comforts her, who strengthens her, that she just could not remain silent on. Man, that's a different, just a different world than ours right now. But it's not very different. I think of believing loyalty and our loyal companionship would hear this story and we at least have a sense of mourning and grief for our sister. But let's enter into our context a little bit. There are LA Dodgers. We're about to host a group that mocks Jesus and his cross. It's an LGBTQ plus group and they're gonna have a, a day, a pride day in MLB and, and this group does things where they mock Christ. And it was a Christian that stood up and said, hey, look, I'm not in support of this. And then after about a day, he came back and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And it happened so quick. But there's no mourning for the Christian. What we just witnessed was Peter. We just witnessed Peter who stood in his believing loyalty because of his loyal, loyalness to the king. And then he rejected it. Who knows what he was berated with and isolated with and slandered by and, and in the God he knows to be good in all circumstances he said well never mind even more so I don't know what he thinks of himself now I wonder if there are Christians coming alongside him and saying there was grace for Peter how much more grace for you loyal companionship is a mark of believing loyalty It's only a strong sense of loyalty that will wake up that unity we all share and help us to see it as it is. And when you, in every circumstance, lay your sword down and say, Jesus, command me in this moment, the enemy will definitely seek to strike. And so we need loyal companionship. We need loyal companionship. There won't be one moment there will be many. And since there is many, another aspect that will bolster our believing loyalty is having a loyal witness. Man, do we see this in this passage? Let me run through these passages real quick. 
It says, Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor, plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, Look, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's only one law to be put to death. Mordecai saying, Esther, I need you to be loyal and stand between our oppressor and your people. And Esther saying, but I might die, man. That's not, that's not weakness, that's human. I hope you're hearing me and saying that I think this is a response we could all relate to. How dare we if we read this and say, yeah, she was weak in that moment. She's human. The first part of this loyal witness starts with Mordecai. He goes on and says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? If you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Sometimes a little loving kick in the butt is what we need from a sibling. Just to be reminded of who you are and under whose authority you dwell and in whose power you go forward. Sometimes in these dire circumstances, it's almost like those scenes in TV shows or the movies where the lights get dim and it's just a spotlight on you. And Mordecai is saying, Esther, take the spotlight off of you. We're not saying we need you. The Lord's going to deliver his people. He's clearly invited you to take part in that. Why wouldn't you want to? Esther wakes up and we see where her response was. This is a moment for you to display a loyal witness. I remember we had a fire alarm in our apartment when we lived in an apartment. It was like at three in the morning. And I think about that today and I'm like, look, Lord, praise God, we were childless. Because I'm like, you know, with these two little boys and a pregnant wife, I'm probably going to use the smell test. Like, is it close? I don't know. <laughs> and we're all lined up outside and uh, you know I don't whatever the fire department is doing what they're doing to make sure we're safe and I'm telling this story to some of our friends at the time and, and someone made a joke and say did you go down the line and tell people you might have been saved today but there's another fire coming for you you know in a very joking fashion and everybody laughed, and I was thinking, he's right. Has it been dismissed as a joke? Only. Does it mean that I had to do that? No, but is it a joke? If I did that, would that be seen as a loyal witness, or would I be seen as one of those guys? Something that we've all agreed, we don't do anymore today. You don't do that today. 
This idea of a loyal witness is actually lost its beauty and power today. There are some things we've already given up to the culture regarding what it means to stand in between the oppressor and deliverance. The oppressor not being flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities and principalities and our sin and deliverance in Jesus Christ. Where the Christian's a meme and a loyal witness. Have you heard about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? They always have a country accent when you say that too, when you make a joke about it. I don't know why that is, but the idea of a loyal witness is is a joke today. Let alone a pillar in what it means to have believing loyalty. Who knows? Perhaps that annoying coworker is always badgering you for a time like this. Perhaps that family member who you don't want to offer forgiveness to has hurt you, hurt you for a time like this. Perhaps that person, that neighbor who's placed their identity and their hope in their body or things they can gain from this world has told you about that hope for a time such as this. And do we have a loyal witness in that moment? Having a loyal witness is being faithful when it's easier not to. It's easier not to. When a wrong is done, you offer forgiveness. That's a loyal witness. When a lie is told, you expose what's true. Ephesians 5, 11. Have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. When evil's done in your own heart, you confess it to God and sibling. That's a loyal witness. And if you must lay down your life, my favorite scene in 300 is when the Spartans had just been pierced with arrows by the Persians because they were betrayed and the king is dying, his men is dying, and one of his men crawls over to him and says, my king, it's an honor to die at your side. It's an honor. Jesus says, this is what it looks like to follow me. Daily, you're dying. And your friendships, you're dying. Parenting, you're dying. Marriage, you're dying towards your enemies, you're dying. You're never first, always last. And instead of the complaints and the griping that we all do, myself included, would we stop in that moment and say, my king, it's an honor to die at your side, even if that is even physical, even if it's physical. May we not see that, but may we live lives that practice for it daily, dying, Dying to self as a loyal witness. And when things are hard in that loyal witness, would we have loyal companionship to lean on and have people mourn and grieve with us in the same way that they comfort us? Our loyal companionship, our loyal witness is what bolsters believing loyalty and also knowing that we have a loyal father. Going back to what Mordecai said, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all other Jews. But if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There's a confidence you can have when you know you're being comforted. 
a confidence that ha you can have when you know you will be comforted. I think about children. Uh, my mother raised children in a daycare my entire life. I've seen the way they act. <laughs> if you're a fan of The Office, Dwight said, I've been raising children since I was a baby. But uh, I've seen a lot. And something that's so in common with a child, um, you have the criers who will cry all the time, but then you have the ones who will fall, and it could be a very hard fall, and they're kind of in shock, and they don't know what to do, and they kind of feel like they got to push through it, you know, because everything's still going on natural, so they're like, oh, let me, let me just try, okay, and then they see their mother, and they immediately break down, I'm thinking, what is that? They know that's where comfort comes from. That's where care comes from. I don't have to hold this together. I'm about to get picked up. I might even get a treat out of the deal. That's where comfort comes from. I want to know if we have the confidence that a loving father from whom all comfort flows and peace and security do we have confidence that he's always there in every circumstance and every moment? Even the moments when you say, but if I do that, then this will happen to me. We can show this confidence in two ways. When the world is threatening, you trust that he's overcome the world. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 that we don't have a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment we can think well about things and we can act in love and we can do it powerfully. We don't have to have paralysis through analysis, speaking as an overthinker here. But you can trust that there's a God of all comfort. Lord, I think you're going this way and if I go this way, I might get hurt. But I know comfort comes from you. And my desire, first and foremost, to making the right decision is to be loyal to you. So even in my confusion, Lord, guide me and comfort me that I would rest in your security. Have me act in a spirit of confidence. And we also have confidence in his grace in times of moral failure. Believing loyalty comes personally. When you think that you come to church, that you have to have it all together like everybody else, I want to tell you now, first and foremost, you can't be more wrong. You can't be more wrong. You have wars raging in your heart, and they manifest themselves in your hands, in your, in your deeds. And believing loyalty is the same confidence that was spoken by Matt earlier, that we go before his throne knowing he's the comforter with abundant grace that comes through Christ. That's what answers the riddle about David. People are wondering, how can David be a good man after God's own heart when his life was so jacked up? Because his believing loyalty was shown in the hidden space. He said, Lord, I need you to clean me from the inside. I, I, I'm, I'm helpless by myself. In iniquity, I was formed, and I need you to create in me a pure heart and clean heart because my deeds can't do it, and my kingship can't do it. I need you to do it. And what David looked toward, we look back to, and it's the cross, and it's Christ. 
This is what I want us to think about as we prepare for communion. I want us to think about what's displayed by Esther after what's required of her. And the beauty of her human response of hesitance and then action is even portrayed by our king. That's the beauty that he models for us. He models in the Garden of Gethsemane that, Lord, look, if there's another way to do this, bring that up now. But I'm loyal to your will, not mine. And because he did that, what we do is we focus on his broken body and his blood. And so I, I, I actually want you, to, if you're a believer, to take intentional time before communion to, to focus on this because I don't want you to see this as just another sermon in a good, bad, and ugly series, but the Christian today is in a world where you will constantly be demanded to renounce your faith in different moments. And this that we're looking at right now is indicative of loyal companionship, that we would have loyal witness, remembering every Sunday of a loyal father. And what Jesus did in his body is he took, God, took God's wrath upon himself, the creator of all things, was slandered, spat on, and beaten. His body broken, but he was raised on the third day. So every form of brokenness that we endure in this life today, what we're looking toward is the resurrection that we share in because we share in his death. It doesn't last. The reviling won't last. The slander won't last. The bruises won't last. We will share in a resurrection like his, and what he did with his blood is while you were an enemy with a heart stained by sin, his blood cleansed you perfectly. If you trust in Christ and as you take communion, remember that. If you are not trusting in Christ and you're thinking about the things that his blood can't remove, you're wrong. And it's good news you couldn't be more wrong. His blood has cleansed you, and it's cleansed you forever. And your life will more and more show that of a believing, loyal child of God. You'll fail, be reminded of his blood that cleanses you. We will share in his resurrection, and we are made his children through his cleansed blood. Speak with the Lord now, and then let's take and eat together.